Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where we savor the pet tested and veterinarian recommended mad max to the road warrior one minute at a time i'm rick and i'm julia and today we're talking about minute 17 which begins with max pulling out a can of dog food and it ends with the gyro captain pulling a spoon out of his jacket oh he's so hopeful lots of pulling in that intro (laughs) So as we come back up from the fade to black yesterday, we find that everyone's in a slightly different position. Max has kind of built himself a makeshift tripod to put his binoculars on. That way he can observe the attack in a bit more of a leisurely position. And speaking of leisurely positions, the gyro captain and dog are like taking a nap or something like that. This is my favorite favorite moment in the movie so far that the dog has kind of sidled up to the gyro captain a little bit they're taking a nap in the sun yeah in the exact same position yeah the gyro captain's on his back and he's kind of scrunched up with his head thrown back and the the dog is just splayed out he's got his his legs open and his head back and he's just ignoring everything (laughs) Yes. Around him. The the funny thing is, is that the dog is like blissfully happy. Yeah. The gyro captain is miserable. Yeah. He does not look comfortable. He is uncomfortable. He is hot. He's hungry. Yeah. He's parched. Like He is miserable and the dog could not be happier. Yep. And it's funny because we were listening to the commentary on the Blu-ray and it's George Miller and Dean Semler, the director of photography, and they were talking about the dog laying out like this was just 100% the dog. They told it to lay down and it just laid down like that. It's It was just a natural talent. They and loved they that found dog. the perfect dog. Yeah, they really did. Now, as we're looking at... The gyro captain and the dog laying out here. We actually, it's really hard to hear. It's very quiet. You missed it. I had no idea that this happened until you told me. Yeah. In the subtitles, like if you're watching the movie with subtitles, you'll have an italicized statement down at the down by the compound. You've got Lord Humongous and he yells, attack my vermin, attack. He's on his loudspeaker and you have to really like turn it up pretty loud, which means you get plenty of wind and you get plenty of you know, ambient noise in the immediate vicinity, but it is there. You can hear it. I like the callback, calling them his vermin. Mm-hmm. Callback to the truck that said the vermin have inherited the earth or yep. shall inherit the earth? Have inherited Have the inherited the earth. So that leads me to believe that it's this horde, this specific horde that attacked that truck. Yeah. I'm not so quick to say that. No? I'd like to think that it was meant more generally when they sprayed it on the side, but I am willing to entertain the idea that the statement the vermin have inherited the earth is something that a specific faction within the Humongous's horde who call themselves the vermin mm-hmm. will go around and when they wreck something, that's what they spray on things. Yeah. That their faction, the vermin, have inherited the earth. Yes. So while I initially thought maybe not, you you I guess I talked myself into yeah, on your side. Yeah, I, I don't think I did any of that. It's all right. <laughs> you did it all yourself. That's why we work so well as a couple, because I can talk myself into your point of view. 
I like that skill. That's a good one. <laughs> we go from looking at the dog and the gyro captain laying out in the sun to a close-up of Max, and he's got a can in his hand, and he's starting to open it with his can opener. The kind of can opener that comes in, like, every utility knife and is just so slow. Like, give me a rotary can opener any day. Oh, my gosh. I'm just saying. You are so spoiled. I am. I am. It's like, okay, in the apocalypse, one of the first things I want to find is a really good rotary can opener. Okay. Solid metal, good construction, teeth aren't going to break off type of thing. Like, give me a rotary can opener. I think that you're asking for a lot because if you recall, since we got married eight years ago, how many can openers have we gone through because we didn't like the one we got? Okay. We've been burned by can openers before. We tried the powered ones, the electric ones, and Mm -hmm. that didn't last too long. Nope. We've tried the no sharp edges... Fancy, fancy type schmancy ones. ones. And the one we have right now is just the bare bones, yeah. super simple. And it took us... Clamp on the side and turn the crank. I think it took us six years to find the can opener that we liked. Well, that's just because we kept going for gimmicks. We kept going for like the new fancy thing and we didn't just stick with what was tried and true. You know, it took us a while to abandon the idea of having a space age can opener and just going <laughs> with a classic model. I mean, now granted, this tool that he's using is a classic model. It's got the hook. It's got the sharp edge. It cuts right in. I mean, every Boy Scout has a can opener like this. And, you know, personally, I would take the effort to, in the event of the apocalypse, comb through the commercial centers, fighting mutants along the way, just so I could have the convenience of finding a rotary can opener. You know where you go. Bed, bath, and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Because they've got those displays that like go all the way up to their high ceiling and it's just can openers all the way up Mm -hmm. and it's crazy how many can openers there are. So the ones low down are going to get picked pretty quick, but the ones that are more difficult to get, those ones are going to be around a little bit longer. Mm. And the zombies would probably be easier to kill. The man zombies, they they were mostly dead inside already, so they'd be really easy to pick off. Wow. (laughs) Wow. You know, considering the passion that you just expressed about a can opener. I know. Not sure you should be talking. I'm a walking hypocrisy, please. (laughs) It's one thing I love about you. (laughs) That I argue argue both sides of my points and just completely invalidate everything I say. Yes. So my recommendation for the apocalypse, have a long stick because you got to reach the the can openers way up high. They're still there. (laughs) Plus there's like the... Like the lemon juicer things and the garlic presses, they hang those like all the way up to the ceiling too. Mm-hmm. And not really sure what you could do with those things, but in an apocalypse, you got to get creative. Like you could crack nuts with those yeah. things and that could be useful. Nuts are a great source of healthy fats. You're going to need that in the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, let's be real. In the event of like a nuclear apocalypse, the best situation, in my opinion, would be to ru- be right at the epicenter of the blast. That oh, way just... you don't have to like survive the wasteland because, oh my God, what a hassle. I know. Just, I've played enough Fallout to know what a pain <laughs> in the butt it is to survive in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. It'd be like, ugh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, if... We had to just going to go down to Bed Bath & Beyond and loot that place first. 
you know, the problem with our closest Bed Bath & Beyond is it's across a river. So it's there's limited places that you can cross the river. It's over by Target. Really? That, I thought our closest one was down by the Walmart. That one would be better. I'm not sure if it's closer, but you don't have to cross a big river to get there. Yeah. I mean, I think the main thing you'd have to worry about there is if people go into the Walmart and like take it over as like their base. And it's like, would Which you, would be smart. Because would they let you go by the Walmart and loot the Bed Bath & Beyond? I feel like they'd ignore it. I think that location would be particularly difficult because in the same plaza you have Staples, yep. which mm, I don't, I'm not really sure about the usefulness of that, but it's there. Staples, Home Depot, Bed Bath and Beyond, ba- and Walmart. Bed Bath and Beyond, and Walmart, and a bank and a mattress. I don't know if there's a mattress store, but there is a um, barber shop. Yes, like a like a which would sport have clips or something like that. Weapons. <laughs> so. And that that plaza is on the border with Massachusetts. It's also on a hill. It's on a hill. That's a really good defensible point. It is. That's a really good plaza. Yeah. The only problem is that there's not a ton of food because it's not a super Walmart. No, it's so a regular it Walmart. Just ha- it only has like shelf-stable food and like one row of refrigerator slash freezer. Yeah. So as far as food goes, it's not that great. I mean, the refrigerator section will go bad first. But, right. I mean, they've Eat got that stuff first. They've got the little electric ovens. So, I mean, the smaller frozen stuff, they'd probably be able to cook if they could keep electricity going. That's very going. true. Plus, plus, Home Depot has all their appliances. That's very true. Refrigerators. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Generators. Generators. Oh, that... Mm, that plaza is perfect. The downside of that plaza is that the nearest gas station is on the other side of the railroad tracks. So, you'd have to go down the hill, across the railroad tracks, back up a hill. It would be tedious. Yeah. Because, I mean, unless you protected the bridge as well that goes over the right. railroad tracks. But I don't know. Okay. But you don't, if, well, no, because you would need to take your car with you. Because I was like, if you're on foot, you don't have to go over that bridge. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying it would be tedious to go on foot and it would be but you wouldn't risky need to, take to go car. in a car. Yeah. I just think that area is going to be completely swamped. Yeah. Probably best to avoid it, really. It's two border towns that like meld into one mm. and it's quite a packed suburban still not city like still suburban but it's very packed in that area yeah so i think it's just going to be overrun yeah very tricky yeah tricky but like you said there's a lot of canned goods in that walmart and you know canned goods they last a good long time there's Absolutely. a reason that max has a whole case of dog food in you the know back what of there's his a car. crap ton of in that walmart dog food dog food yeah yeah it's probably more nutrition in the pet food aisle than in the limited grocery section yeah. in that walmart so Speaking of shelf life of dog food, and I wasn't talking about the shelf life of dog food. I'm just making a really obvious transition. <laughs> right. We had to transition out of that conversation somehow. Yeah, we got into a pretty deep hole. So <laughs> All over a can opener. The idea of Max having a ton of cans and things like that in the post-apocalypse is a pretty good idea. Because even in our civilized, non-post-apocalyptic society, a can of dog food has a shelf life of about five years. That's which is a, a very long good long time. time. Now, granted, you know, once society falls apart, there aren't going to be new cans of dog food being made. But five years is a long time yeah, to establish well, yourself or get I on the move. I guess so. Thinking post post-apocalyptically five years suddenly doesn't seem like very long at all no because of the environment and right. having to adapt but and whatnot, it but. does like you said it gives you five years to figure out what supply of food is next yeah 
they say in the article that I read, and this was from pets.thenest.com, talking about life expectancy, they say straight up that when you can something, you sterilize it so that mm-hmm. the environment inside that can is essentially safe. And while they say undamaged cans have the potential to last much longer than five years, in a civilized society, you can get rid of a five-year-old can because you can just go about go out and buy more. But in yes. a post-apocalyptic setting, you know, you can hold on to that for a long time as long as it's stored in the right way. Yes. As far as storing your canned dog food, they say that it really depends on the conditions. They say ideally the can should be stored in a stable room temperature environment about 68 degrees Fahrenheit. They say don't store cans in an area where the temperature gets more than 90 degrees or if it dips below 50 degrees, that ba- that's bad too. In a 90-degree situation, the temperature inside the can, it can start to, like, spoil the contents. What happens when you store it below 50 degrees, and I apologize for our international listeners. This is all in Fahrenheit. I didn't translate all of those temperatures. But when you store canned goods under 50 degrees, it can change the appearance. It can change the texture. The nutritional and the safety values stay the same, Mm -hmm. but it it just changes it and makes it taste a little weird. Which, in the context of dog food... I mean, it tastes weird already. Right. Like, it looks like dog food. It tastes like dog food. We use that as an insult. So, it changing in appearance or taste doesn't really make much of a difference, I didn't yeah. think. But taking something that tastes bad and making it worse is not ideal. And I suppose. So, the all this talk about temperature, it got me really curious about the area that Max is kind of existing in. Uh, In this instance, they're just filming in Broken Hill. But considering that you can go on to websites like uh, weatherzone.com.au and you can look up long-term averages for the area of Broken Hill. Okay. And what's really interesting is that the temperature ranges only go from like 4.8 degrees Celsius or about 40 degrees Fahrenheit at the low end to 33.5 degrees celsius which is about 92 degrees fahrenheit on the high end and that's over the course of like the entire year wow i I... you look at the landscape and it looks arid and it looks hot right because everything is red or just dirt colored it looks like a desert and all the deserts that we have here in north america are hot places and it's funny to think that this arid area actually has a pretty agreeable climate like if i lived in a place where the high was only 92 and the low was 40 yeah that'd be pretty awesome i would sign up for that absolutely like high of 92 i'll bet that's about the same as us i I really don't know what our high is but our low is much lower than 40 oh yeah our low i think our low average is probably in the teens I'd say lower. Like we've gotten well below zero Celsius a lot of the time during the winter. And when it comes time for summertime, we will go up above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And I think that's about 34, 35 Celsius if I'm just ballparking it, which I'm probably not hitting the nail right on the head. But we have such a huge range of temperature in our area of -hmm. North America where it's just the idea of something range a little bit smaller just sounds great. It really does. I'm a little jealous. Yep. But the important thing is that Max wouldn't necessarily have to worry about his dog food going bad because for an extremely large percentage of the year, the temperatures that he's experiencing are well within that safety range of 
50 to 90 degrees yeah. Fahrenheit. I really dropped the ball with not getting the Celsius temperatures there, but one day we'll abandon the imperial system and go back to metric like everybody else. Does Celsius Maybe. count as metric? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's categorized as metric. I don't think it's the same thing. But exactly, it falls but... in that family, like as opposed to Fahrenheit and imperial yeah. numbers. It's it falls into the opposite category of whatever we use. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, you remember when we were talking about Max opening a can of dog food before yeah. we got off on all those tangents? Yeah, I do. Getting back to that. Uh huh. <laughs> So as Max is opening up this can, that we get another shot of the dog and he kind of, he stirs, he smells or hears that Max is opening this can Yep. and he kind of like rolls over and sits up on his paws. Yep. I love that he does not get up. He knows that it's not his turn. Max is eating right now. And when Max is done, then it's dog's turn. Mm -hmm. But he, he knows what's happening. It's just another example of dog is best dog. Yeah, it is. Yeah. A moment that I love is that Captain mimics the dog. He also perks up mm -hmm. when he hears things happening. But he has a little bit of different attitude about it. Before the end of the minute, he pulls out a wooden spoon from his coat. Yeah. Thinking that he's going to get to share in the food. I love his optimism. Yeah. Like one major thing that defines the gyro captain in my eyes is his positive outlook. He just thinks that things are going to go his way mm -hmm. due to some idea of him being lucky or him being, like we said before, smart. Like he just thinks that things are going to go his way and he's very hopeful. And I like yeah, that about him. Yeah, it's refreshing because it's like the exact opposite of Max. Yeah. Uh, interesting that you brought up his wooden spoon because while the gyro captain uses a spoon, Max uses a fork. Both very valid. I think a wooden spoon is more useful in more situations than a fork. Like you can't eat a stew or a soup with a fork. But if you ever find yourself in a soup situation, I guess you could always just drink it. Right. I love the comparison between the two and that you picked up on it because I am a fork person. Mm -hmm. And you are a spoon person. Yeah. So we will eat the exact same meal and I will eat it with a fork and you will eat it with a spoon. Yeah. Well, my reasoning behind using a spoon in some situations is if you're eating out of a bowl, a fork can be very difficult to wield in a curved surface. Like forks are great for like eating off of a plate. But when it comes to eating out of a bowl, the curved nature of the spoon lends itself to getting everything out of that bowl. Now, where Max is eating out of a can, a fork is really good because you can go, you can scrape down the sides, you can get all the food out there and shovel it there. But, you know, if Max was eating out of a bowl be a little tricky to get every last morsel out which is really what you want to do when food is so scarce maybe not max <laughs> maybe max isn't so concerned with getting every last morsel because he is going to pass it along to dog after the fact it's so funny because i just thought in my head that i don't have that problem because i never finish my plate no i you always never do. hand it to you to finish so i don't have to scrape the bottom of my bowl with my fork yeah <laughs> He's just passed that task I just on to me. Pass that task on to you and your spoon. Yeah. I think if I was in a post-apocalyptic situation, and I know we've talked a lot about that this this episode, us putting us in the post-apocalypse, I would want the best of both worlds. I would want a spork. Yeah, I think a spork would be smart because it's got the curvature that you need, but it also has the stabbing ability. Yeah, it's got those very short tines on mm -hmm. the front, but it's still got most of the the spoon construction. And because I was on a spork kick when i was putting my notes together of course. i found a fun note 
A fun fact about sporks. The combined spoon, fork, and knife closely resembling the modern spork was actually invented in February 1874. And then other early patents predating the modern spork included a patent in 1908 for a cutting spoon and another patent in November 1912 for a spoon with a tined edge. And all of those patents predate the nomenclature of spork. So people have been combining spoons and forks for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) You know what you might like? Like officially since the late 1870s, but probably many years before that, because you've got other types of utensils. Yeah. You know what you might like? I'm not sure this is the actual proper name, but this is what I knew it by, a grapefruit spoon. It's a spoon about the same size as a regular teaspoon, Mm -hmm. and it's got, how do I describe it? The tip of it around the curvature is broken up into little tiny mini tines. Yeah. So the... And it like breaks through food. Oh, nice. That sounds pretty nice. Yeah. You know, you get to use a spoon, but if you need to cut a big piece of broccoli, you have that almost serrated, I guess, but not sharp. That edge that can break through the broccoli to chop it up into two pieces. Yeah. That sort of thing. You might like that. Granted, Max doesn't really have to cut through anything because he's just putting that fork into the dog food and, you know, shoveling it out in nice big chunks. And unsurprisingly, a lot of people online think it's a great subject for their blog or their forum posts to go out and try eating dog food. There was one blog post that I saw, I think it was on a tractor forum, where this guy bought like six different types of dog food. Mm-hmm. And sampled each one of them, and he ranked these six different brands of dog food by taste and texture and price. And the whole time I'm reading his posts, he's like, blah, 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 blah. But then again, I'm the guy sitting at home on a Friday night eating dog food. And he right. was so self-deprecating throughout the whole post, and I loved it. It was one of the best parts <laughs> about it. And he actually did go through, and he was very specific and very judicious about it. And at the end of the day, he told you exactly which one tasted the best and which one he would recommend and how all the scores stacked up. And of course, he replied to one of the people later on and he's like, don't get me wrong. This was all disgusting. Like, I wouldn't eat this. I wouldn't eat this as an entire meal. But, you know, just to see, just to sate my curiosity. Right. It does seem to be quite often a topic of discussion. Yeah. Like, what does dog food taste like? And I mean, you read an article as well, right? I did. This woman, she seemed, I didn't really look into who she was, but she seemed the type like hipster blogger from New York type writer who ate dog food for six days. Is it like a money saving thing or? No. And this is, (laughs) well, okay. No. Yes, it was. It did have some money saving aspects to it. She eats paleo or Paleo. Paleo. I think it sounds better when you say paleo. Anyways, paleo is mostly meat, vegetables, and grains? Or no grains. I I think think no grains. Meat, vegetables. I think it's nicknamed the caveman diet. Right. The idea to eat what cavemen would have eaten. Yes. So very, very basic food groups. And it's time-consuming and expensive. So she decided to try eating dog food for six days and she tried a variety and it was very interesting. She also talked to a animal nutritionist 
I think, was the person that she talked to about dog nutrition versus human nutrition. Mm -hmm. And the plus side of dog food, pet food in general, is that this is the only thing that they eat, which means it's complete nutrition. Right. The problem is it's complete nutrition for a dog, Mm. not for a human. And a problem that Max might have specifically is that dogs make their own vitamin C. Really? Yeah, which I didn't know. That's And I did not fact check that because a a scientist said this, so I'm just trusting them. (laughs) (laughs) Which sounds really weird to me, like an animal making their own vitamin C. It just sounds like crazy to me. But this is what she said, that dogs make their own vitamin C. So their food doesn't contain any vitamin C, which means Max isn't getting any. Yeah, so he's he's at risk for scurvy. I think that's vitamin D. Is it? I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure scurvy is a vitamin C deficiency. Okay, you're probably right, because you're smarter than me. Because pirates would go into port and they would eat fruits to keep from getting scurvy. Citrus fruit. Yeah. Which is high in vitamin C. Anyways, so it's complete nutrition for dogs, but not for humans. Mm, And the article was really interesting, so I will post it on the Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone listeners page. Yeah, the general consensus that I've seen is that it's just not palatable to a modern uh, sensibility. Yeah, the author tried a variety. At first, she tried just like basic kibble. And yeah, I mean, she could stomach it. I think she ate it for breakfast all six days. But for her other meals, she went more towards the whole food, natural stuff, Mm -hmm. which is pretty much just like chunks of meat and vegetables. Yeah. And which is the same food that we as humans eat. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where if you're used to eating a variety of food, fresh fruits and vegetables and meats and breads, you have a certain palate to you where if all you eat is dog food, I mean, he looks like he's enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. He looks satisfied. I mean, if that's what you eat, I mean, you're going to develop a taste for it. As we were listening to the audio commentary, I think George asked Dean or maybe the other way around. It's kind of hard to distinguish. Yeah, their voices are very similar. Who's talking. But one of them asks the other if they remember what Mel Gibson was actually eating in this scene and he said I don't quite remember it might have just been like spaghetti and meatballs or something like that (laughs) yeah it looked to me like refried beans with maybe chunks of meat yeah like to make it like fibrous or something fry up some ground beef mix it in with With, uh, refried beans that's what it looked to me like yeah which sounds pretty tasty actually I would eat that yeah you would heck yeah eat refried beans out of the can i would eat refried beans unheated out of a can yeah i mean i wouldn't but good source of protein fiber if i'm gonna eat refried beans they at least need to be hot (laughs) so maybe i wouldn't do so well i eat other things cold out of the can like fruits or vegetables yeah soups i would eat soups cold out of the can Mm. yeah so shifting our focus away from max and his dog food as we get into like the latter third of this minute if you turn up the volume really loud (laughs) and you can stomach the the scraping and the chewing and the swallowing and the sound of the wind you can hear the lord humongous barking more commands to his dogs of war he says onward bring me the fuel for the glory of humongous for the great glory of humongous and then he commands smegma crazies to the left the gate 
gay boy berserkers to the gate. And I can't remember if earlier in the movie we talked about the specific names of the factions within the Horde. No, actually, I knew the specific names of the factions because it's in the screenplay and I purposely didn't bring it up. Were we talking about that off mic? We were talking about it off mic that I wasn't going to bring it up. Yeah, I don't know if I can necessarily look at the members of the Horde and pick out who is who. Right. But I like the idea of there being multiple factions that Lord Humongous has been able to gather together into this fighting force of his. Yes. It speaks to his character as a villain. That he's able to either inspire loyalty or terrorize or compel all of these different groups and then coordinate them well enough to do things in the wasteland. Yeah, you know, it really is quite impressive to accomplish this level of organization because this is the exact type of organization that broke down. Mm -hmm. I think the type of organization that really broke down was the kind that isn't ruled by fear and intimidation. Mm -hmm. And I think this is just a return to form yeah when you talk about like the dark recesses of men you know ruling by force and coercion i think there's something to be said in that if someone wanted to do like a deep dive about the nature of of humans Mm. and the default that we go back to yeah i mean how they seem to be responding to that type of rule i mean stripped of all societal limitations who wouldn't want to throw on a leather bikini and a iron hockey mask and run around in the the desert i think we can all agree that that's just you know the natural state of men (laughs) (laughs) so that leads us into the final shot of this minute max continues to eat and the gyro captain pulls a wooden spoon out of his jacket that's where we kind of wrap up for the day and uh we'll see how that works out for the gyro captain tomorrow all right The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 17 of The Road Warrior. We'll see you tomorrow.